I'm reminded of a conversation you and I once had um, around pattern recognition and especially around Dr. Shetty where you would say that occasionally when you and he would go for walks um, around the neighborhood park, he would spot people walking and he would like tell them that this person, he would tell you that this person has so-and-so disease or this person doesn't know it, right? Like, you know, that's, I mean, of course, as with decades of experience as a surgeon, He's got that pattern recognition. What's your, I mean, we also spoke about GPT, which is also pattern recognition and, and prediction. What's What are the patterns you tend to kind of spot the best? Um, in company statements and in the presentations founders make, like that's the sort of pattern. So that's the thing that I spend most of my time on and understanding how companies work. So my pattern recognition is not in individuals with, uh, you know, issues, but it's how companies think. So when a company says, we're going to spend X billions of dollars on, you know, conquering this market. And I can say, okay, you know, either this company's on this absolute ego trip or they know something that the rest of us don't know. So there may be a conglomerate out there that's acquiring every single niche of the economy that currently exists because there's an amenable, uh, you know, system that allows that. And, you know, you can look and say, oh, this is corporate overreach, this is greed. But on the other hand, I say, no, this this actually makes sense because there's a very limited amount of time where you can grab as much land as possible. So from a corporate strategy perspective, this is the logical move to make. Or if you see some company that's not doing well in its home market, and they say, no, we're going to pivot to the Middle East. We're going to pivot to the U.S. Some people may say, oh, you know, this is just a desperate grab for more VC dollars. I would look at it and say, no, actually, it makes sense because they've figured out the right model. They're just not unit economic positive here. But with the same cost structure, you leverage that in a higher paying market. You have yourself a viable business. So the patterns, I am not great at it, but the things that I'm better uh, than the people around me are is in looking at how companies behave and seeing the things that, you know, why they would do a certain thing and what their motivations would be around that. Hello and welcome back to First Principles. I'm your host, Rohin Dharma Kumar, and this is our 36th episode. I want to thank you for choosing to listen to us. Perhaps you listen to us each week or perhaps only every now and then. I know there's a world of podcasts, music, videos, and books out there for you to choose from, which is why we are truly grateful for your time. In 2024, we have big plans for First Principles on various fronts. Podcast, newsletter, community, and even books. I and my colleagues at The Ken are this excited and ambitious only because of you. So, please do rate or review us if you still haven't done so. A few weeks ago, I had a wonderful conversation with Viren Shetty, the Executive Vice Chairman of Narayana Health. That was Viren, who you just heard. Narayana Health, formerly called Narayana Hrudalaya, is a hospital network that's also listed on the stock exchanges. Today's episode is the second part of my conversation with Viren. In part one, Viren talked to me about healthcare in India, something he described as an assembly line. If you remember listening to it, you'll know that Viren has both the intricate knowledge and the undeniable intuition about the healthcare landscape in India. We discussed Viren's ambitions to fix healthcare in India and where Narayana Health is headed. And that led us to why Viren holds this mission so close to his heart. In the second part of the conversation, what led him to healthcare? What drives him to wake up and do this day after day? In our opening, you heard about Viren's innate pattern recognition superpower, which is very different from his father, Dr. Devi Shetty's. So I asked, how did he build this intuition and how does he use it to run a vast hospital network? Viren answers all of these questions with stories from his life, career, and even from the hospitals where he grew up. Let's dive in.
In one of the interviews you've given, you said that your role at Narayana Health is to look around the corners of the industry. Uh, there are enough people to put out fires when and if they do happen. And I'm sure like, you know, fires uh, being represented metaphorically. But in a large organization, there are always fires. But what do you mean by your role is to look around the corners of the industry? See, most large organizations is just putting out one fire after another. If someone leaves, you need to replace them. Something breaks, you need to fix it. You need to spend money on something. You need to make money on something. Just There's just this constant, every single day is like Groundhog Day where you wake up and it's the same bunch of things that you do again it's, and again. It's that two by two matrix of urgent and important. You're always doing the stuff which is urgent, but not important. And important always gets relegated for a later day because you're doing something like you said, there's something urgent which has which needs your attention today. Sure, why not? Uh, in in my company, I've banned two by twos. Like I'm mm. never allowed those. Oh, you for 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 a, for, a, for an MBA? How how did that feel? The strategy was the class I despised the most. Oh really? <laughs> so I brought a little bit of that. No more two by twos. It's not that easy, you know. It's, you're right. Like intellectually, you're right in that urgent, non-important, this important. But you know, I I tell someone, I tell this to my. my Dad, for example, and he will just laugh at it. Say, "What? Well, everything is urgent. Everything needs to be done. Everything is a fire. Everything you need to do all <laughs> things all at once. So there's no, it's not two by two. It's just a one, <laughs> and and that's how you know that's how he thinks about the world. <clears throat> so yeah, everything is on fire. Everything needs to be taken care of. But the luxury, I would say, of being maybe one step removed." And having really good, very diligent, very dedicated people for fighting the fires is that it gives me the freedom to think about the why right? and a little bit of the how. So we're building this thing. We're building an organization. We're building all these people, getting all this talent, building up a great brand, building all this trust. What are we going to do with it? And there is a world in which we could have kept doing what we did. More hospitals, more acquisitions more, uh, you know, clinics, more of everything. And that's one way to grow. And you can build a pretty large organization, be very successful doing that. Or we could ask a little bit of the why. And I think the pandemic was a little bit of this time in which we, I think we all had a whole lot of free time to sit back and think about the why, which is why does our business work this way? How are we really resilient to external shocks? Are we really serving the needs of our customer? Are we building something that will survive into the 21st century? Um, you know, there's so much disruption that's coming in. What is the disruption that's going to affect us? And so that's the role that I see myself doing, which is looking around the corner, looking at all the new models that are out there, looking at every single version of GPT that comes out and saying, okay, you know, maybe it's not perfect right now, but what are the things I can do with it and apply it to our business? And so the extra time that I have, not fighting fires constantly, uh, maybe only a little bit of the time, would be used to push the boundaries of what's possible. So do 10 things, eight things won't work. The two things that do, keep doing more of that. Tell me a bit about your career. You're an engineer and an MBA. And like, you know, I mean, and of course, from 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 your degree days to now, what has been your career progression or ladder or lattice as increasingly? I mean, I've, I've, recently I was reading an interesting article which said that it's wrong to look at careers as ladders because we make a lot of occasionally like lateral moves, sometimes even backwards. So you need to look at it more as a lattice. So let's talk about your career lattice. What was your career lattice? I mean, everything... Uh... Not so a ladder also implies that everything is planned and you know that you're heading in a particular direction. And so mine wasn't exactly like that. I didn't even know that I would end up in this industry. I had no interest in medicine, even though I come from a huge family of doctors. Um, I saw my first heart surgery when I was 11 and I said, no, thank you. <laughs> uh, my brother, on the other hand, who saw it and said, yes, please, more of this. He was nine at the time, so he was a lot more 
impressed with the idea of heart surgery and so he said more of this i said no thank you did he turn out to be a surgeon he he is a very good heart surgeon you know one of the best of his age um so i didn't know exactly what i wanted all i knew is that if you're not doing medicine in india you're doing engineering that's pretty much the only default option i was attracted a little bit to finance or so on but you know it wasn't really a viable option for me so engineering is something i fell into and i was a little analytically inclined and so this was something i was good at and you and i share an engineering college and as we all know of the indian engineering system if you're not in an iit you end up with a lot of free time and there isn't much and so what any indian kid that comes from a business family if their parents or uncles see them sitting around with nothing to do hey you know, go work and so that was pretty much my life from college uh any holidays that we got any extra time that we had i would go to my uncle's office he ran a construction company i would just sit around in the site not knowing what i was doing but just felt maybe through osmosis i i don't know what that was but the exposure to the business world comes very early on when i was 20 uh, my uncle gifted me a company called hospital engineering services which still exists actually and the idea was uh, all the maintenance of the hospital that my father just set up i would do so that would be setting up the toilets maintaining the generator uh all these odd engineering jobs that every hospital needs because i'm an engineer so clearly i know about generators uh, that's what i would do and i don't know if i was given much choice in the matter and so that's pretty much what i would do classes would finish by half day or even if they didn't finish by half day i would i would finish by half day and then drive all the way from mysore road towards bomsandra which you know this was the days before the outer 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 ring roads so yeah. it was quite a challenge but i didn't mind driving so much back then and that where my career started essentially in the hospital in the generator room uh looking at things break down constantly so if you say you know things are on fire in a hospital i've seen things literally on fire not in the hospital but around the hospital um when i graduated i spent a short amount of time abroad as one does working for interning at an engineering company i didn't like it as much and when i came back i again didn't know what to do so i sort this of after your mba after the engineering and so i sort of drifted back into the hospital there was again nothing to do so okay we're not doing anything do more of your engineering stuff and at the time we were expanding the hospital adding more hospitals and she said okay you're an engineer clearly you know how to build a hospital because which engineer doesn't know how to build a hospital right out of an engineering school right i mean this is what we paid for so so do it and i didn't know enough to say no and so that's what i did and so i was part of the team that built a lot of the hospitals in bangalore and the expansions in uh, the hospital that we built in jaipur and amdabad in calcutta and uh, i had fortunately a good team around me a lot of people who were much better at doing the work than me but it would come to you know these again a the little bit of decisions okay this contractor versus that contractor this window aluminum window or a upvc window or we go for form fitted factory doors or built on site uh, teak wood doors and it's not that i knew exactly which was the right decision and that's what i realized a uh, thing about a lot of businesses there is no right decision there's just a decision it costs some amount of money and you live with the consequences you go for something cheaper save money today deal with it tomorrow you go for something more expensive you spend more money maybe it lasts you longer uh kept doing that until i felt that okay i'm, I'm just an engineer and everyone around me has 2 3 degrees and you need to get couple more degrees in the belt and if you're an engineer i didn't want to do more engineering uh so mba and then i applied to a bunch of schools abroad got into one of them and then i thought okay you know maybe i'll do something abroad but i worked in a us hospital when i was there and i didn't see a ton of innovation i didn't see anything that was happening in hospitals abroad that was exciting or things that were as interesting as what i was doing back home 
And so I decided that, you know, let me just work in India and build this really great organization. Now I'm skipping through a lot of things because in parallel, our company also is going through this major metamorphosis. We went from this family health concern to one that took in private equity. Uh, I was part of the team that did, uh, you know, the evaluation of all the PE suitors. I was on the board of NH. I was part of very high level decisions, but also bathroom level decisions. Uh, I was, you know, uh, part of a lot of the discussion that revolved around our financial projections, all the numbers we were supposed to hit. Then after that, our private equity people needed an exit, and then we had to get an IPO, an exit. So I was part of the team that also, you know, handled IPO. Uh, post IPO, I took an executive role in the company. I took the role of the chief operating officer. I did that for two years, and then I found someone much more competent to be able to do that. And so I find myself finally in uh, a position where I don't have to do any active uh, bathroom maintaining work, but more along the lines of, like I said, looking around the corners and seeing what our strategy needs to be and helping align the organization uh, around that. How long have you been at Narayana Health <coughs> from the time that you started? Uh, if you, I started when I was 20, I'm nearly 40 And how 40 old are now. you now? I'm, I'm going to be 40 next year, so. So we two so decades. You, yeah. What does it, what does it look like when you, like, or, or let me rephrase, what are some of the interesting things that you've seen around the corner of your industry? in the last six to 12 months? The past six months, the most interesting thing has been the rise of LLMs. I mean, this is something that absolutely came out of nowhere. So I'm, again, as an engineer, you're required to be tech savvy. Everyone knows engineers can fix all the computers, right? So who sets Bathrooms, up the- Bathrooms, buildings, doors, computers. computers that's obviously, right? right? Engineers should know computers and how to set up the password and download things on the app store. So. Straight line from uh, resetting a password to downloading and using the latest LLM. Yeah, of course. Clearly, you know, the engineer, right? So um, the past six months, the thing that's fascinated me the most is not so much about the about GPT-4. I mean, I don't understand it sufficiently. I'm getting old enough to the point where understanding how transformers work it could be something that maybe 20-year-olds can worry about. I just need to figure out how it's useful for my business. And so we've you know, got all engineers looking at it and trying to poke holes at it and try and implement little pilot programs into how this can even further simplify a lot of the manual tasks. So we found some very interesting use cases. One is it's a lot of people's experience where when they leave the hospital and there's some doctor notes scribble down on something, you can barely understand it. Or even if it is typed out, it's maybe two or three sentences. But the hospital that we run in the Cayman Islands, because the practice is very different over there, doctors leave you with pages and pages and pages full of notes. And it's very comprehensive, very detailed. And so since LMs are basically a very, very superpowered autocomplete, and in my you know, primitive understanding of this, I thought, okay, if, if that was autocomplete and if I'm able to provide the barest data around it, can the uh, can the bot just autocomplete the patient summaries for us? And so we built a pretty good uh, solution that can do that, which can take a lot of the inputs that come from the blood test reports, from the doctor's notes, from some voice uh, transcriptions, or even from their scribbles and turn that into a very detailed summary that the doctor can read and if they're happy with it, say, yeah, this, this is something I'm comfortable enough to send our patients home with. All right, GPT is one, what else? Beyond that, uh, the thing that I've been most invested in for the past one year is getting our insurance entity off the ground. Now, this is a very interesting process because this is a business we have no business getting into. We have no experience in this. We have, uh, you know, other than getting a lot of patients with insurance, we have no idea how the industry should function. So starting from hiring the CEO, working with the team that will put this together, figuring out our pricing strategy, these are just very new and interesting things for us. So for one year, it's just going through a crash course on how, you know, even from the accounting standards of how insurance companies think about accounting, what their solvency ratios have to look like. That is something that's uh, very different from how hospitals operate. 
And so using the hospital-centric lens as applied to insurance is something that's been taking uh, quite a lot of time at the senior management level. Hi, I'm Anushka, and thank you for listening to First Principles. I've produced this episode that you're listening to, and my colleague Rajiv, our resident sound engineer, has put it together. Now, at this point, I'm sure you know that our First Principles podcast episodes go out every Thursday. But if you didn't know, we also have a companion weekly newsletter that expands on the themes that you hear on this podcast, like mental models, learning and self-reflection. For instance, the most recent edition of the First Principles newsletter that drops into your inbox every Sunday, by the way, talks about why sometimes your best work can emerge when you impose constraints on yourself. Cut out the noise and wear your blinkers. Also, in every edition, you get a wonderful set of photos, book recommendations and even playlists. And these are all curated from the First Principles community. There's a link in the show notes that will lead you straight to this edition. And if you haven't subscribed yet, I just want to tell you that the newsletter is completely free. Just sign up and you get access to all our editions across the last six months. And by the way, I edit the book section of the newsletter. So I'm just going to take this opportunity to say that if you have any favorite books that you think the First Principles community will enjoy, please send them my way. You'll find a link in the show notes for this as well. Thank you for your time and back to Rohan now. I see a connect between what you said earlier about having the time and freedom to look around the corners of the industry. Uh, if you were to look at the examples that you shared, um, GPT or insurance. But these are also things that, like you rightly said, you or people at Narayana Health may not have had knowledge about. So what's your process of immersion? How do you learn? How do you learn? Because, I mean, if you've never, if you aren't a software engineer who's working in AI and ML, then it's it's something new to you. Insurance is the stuff of actuaries and statistical models, etc., and stuff like that. Uh, how do you learn new things? What's your method when when you when you spot something on the horizon or around the corner which you feel is important? How do you get started on learning it? Uh, playing around at the edges of it, experimenting with it, just making initial forays. So. In the case of insurance, this is something that we've had on our mind for more than a decade. But it was something we were never, either we were never solvent enough, or it was something we felt wasn't the right time, or a certain set of circumstances prevented us from jumping all the way in. So there was, many, many years ago, one of the insurance companies where one set of investors wanted to exit and they were looking for a strategic acquirer. And so, you know, team and I went to the headquarters, met the promoter, met the, and that sort of the due diligence around that forced us to learn a little bit about how the insurance industry actually functions. And we got to speak to a lot of people, speak to the investors, speak to people within. But at the time we weren't ready to pull the plunge, uh, to take the plunge. And so we held back on it, but it was always something that now once you have that initial taste for a thing, you keep an eye on the sector. So read up about it, again, speak to people coming from that industry, and you know it better so that when the time is right, you can go all in. So that the, we had a lot more time to take a measured uh, response. So, so you're to, saying there are times when organizations do things when it's the right time to do them. <laughs> Sometimes you don't get to choose that either. Right. Uh, our software venture was just driven through desperation because we had a vendor. We had a software that was going out of support. And the contract was about to expire and the vendor was about to pull the plug. And so everything happened in a very compressed time frame. So that was literally, you know, the ground is on fire. Everything is about to collapse tomorrow and you need to make a very quick decision. So then the, it's also easier in the sense that you don't really need to think about it. This is the only path forward. When no one is going to help you out, you have to do it yourself. And then it's easy because the decision is made for you. And there are things that are a little more active. There is no immediate use case for GPT. Those are the harder in. decisions. Those are harder. So to commit resources, we have a huge engineering backlog. 
we have a massive amount of needs, changes, bug fixes, version changes, um, UI changes that have to be made to our software, and a massive shortage of engineering talent. Because as much as Bangalore is a capital, it also means that people keep you know getting poached and it's not easy to build up a high-functioning team. But to then proactively say, no, we're going to take these engineers away from things that are... Sorry, I'm going to interrupt you. Who do you lose? Like, I mean, <coughs> is is there... I mean, in the space of healthcare and designers, engineers, etc. What's the pool or what's your rival pool or like similar pools of talent look like? I mean, who do you lose to in, in Bangalore normally? Is it just other software organizations, IT services organizations, captives? What is it? See, uh, okay, let me put it this way. A health tech software company is never going to be able to be the first choice of employment for doctors. If a doctor is coming out of medical school, they're going to practice in a hospital. That's where they want to work. Similarly, when a person is right out of, you know, NIT or if they're coming from, if they have really good full stack experience, their first choice is not going to be the captive software development unit of a hospital chain. We're not the employer of choice. That's the sort of humility that we have and we've learned along the way. Their first choice is going to be a startup. Their first choice is going to be, or even like an Amazon or a Flipkart or one of the large companies. Uh, Because that's the impression everyone has. You know, software development, that clearly only happens in a software company. But the fact of the matter is with the rise of GCCs and with these huge development centers, companies like Walmart, uh, hire many, many more engineers than most startups. And we also, I mean, we have a sizable team. We have about you know, 80, 90 engineers with us. So it's harder for us to get people through the front door because we're not seen as, it's not a resume building thing. Like, you know, someone has... It's not, it's not a doctor joining Narayana Health. Exactly. Where it's, I would assume, a much easier uh, way to get them through the front door. Yeah. So, and we're in HSR layout, which, as you know, is startup central for Bangalore. And every other day, there's a new company coming in. And even if the pay is not better and there's ESOPs, it's just the idea that I get to, you know, work for this company. And it could be I'm being paid in lottery tickets, but that's fine. Uh, So we tend to lose a lot of talent that way. So it's harder for us to make those decisions where the tangible payoff is not immediate, but you sort of go by gut. You say the whole world seems to be going absolutely apeshit over buying up as many, you know, NVIDIA, the supercomputer GPU clusters as possible. So many billions of dollars. There has to be something in there. We can't just sit here like Luddites and say, oh, this AI thing's clearly going to blow over. No, it is game-changing technology. Now, in some ways, the just if you've used the uh, OpenAI chatbot, in some ways, it is so incredibly dumb. But in some ways, it is so profound. It's so phenomenal in that its ability to give you an answer that you could have never imagined. Right? So there's something in there. And that's something that we need to spend time and money and effort and manpower to invest in. So those are the harder decisions that may have an uncertain payoff. But those are sort of things that you just have to do as part of the overall process of discovery to know that these are the limits of which you can make something happen. While still, we're fortunate build, having built this large organization that still is able to generate enough money for us to be able to spend some of that in doing these, at the current moment, pointless, but eventually it may lead to something. How many people work at Narayana Health all put together? Uh, I would say at this point, maybe around 16,000, 17,000 people. And I would assume that organizing around culture in a hospital chain is is not easy. It can't be easy because you have doctors who are very headstrong and who are driven by a larger purpose and who don't necessarily see eye to eye with quote-unquote the suits. And then you have the administration staff. Like, I mean, a lot of the problems that you said or the opportunities has to be fixed by people who are not doctors and the doctors resent it. And then you've got this engineering team, etc. What's the 
cultural evolution at Narayana Health and what's the forcing function around that culture? I think we're a lot closer to the problem than most organizations. So if you say, you know, the McDonald's mission statement is that we feed people. And okay, so I think they're very close to the notion of feeding people. For us, we help people, we treat people, we take care of people. And okay, someone sitting in the corporate office, maybe a couple of steps away from the place where you're taking care of people, but you're never not exposed to it. Not from, you know, customers coming in and out, but even from your own life. Your own family members, nearly everyone has some experience in a hospital. Even engineers fall sick and they end up in the hospital or their family members fall sick and they bring them to the hospital. So it is a very tangible thing. So the cultural, the culture set around the fact that we're here to help people. We're here to provide service. We're here to be of service to people and everything flows from that. Now, how everyone chooses to interpret that will be different. So a doctor's uh, experience of how you provide service is literally with their hands. So doctor's hands are involved in that. And so for them, yeah, they are the closest manifestation of being able to provide value and service to someone. When you're seeing a patient at two in the morning, you're actually providing value. Whereas for someone in the billing desk or someone as a back office manager or someone you know who's a finance head, you may be one or two steps removed, but it is all leading to the same thing because you know, the medicines still need to be delivered on time, the bathrooms still need to be clean, and the payroll still needs to go out on the first of every month. So it all leads to the same place. The other major one I would say is that as an organization, we aren't bloodthirsty for the financial metrics. There are organizations that tend to, and not healthcare particularly, but most organizations are pretty bloodthirsty around the bottom line. And they are pretty fanatic around hitting certain numbers or certain financial metrics or targets because, you know, let's be clear. I mean, money is the lifeblood of any organization. If you're not hitting your numbers, why are you even here? But as an organization, the fact is you can provide a huge amount of service. You can see a huge number of patients. You can do a lot of surgeries, deliver a lot of medicine. And you can make a ton of money doing that or you can lose a ton of money doing that. For us, it's about creating that sense of balance. Neither too much, nor too little. So we don't undercharge or underprice all our services. We underprice some of our services because there are some things that you have to do at a loss leader. A pediatric program, for example, we run the largest pediatric cardiac program in this part of the world at least. It doesn't make money. It can't make money because operating on children means that it's very complex and very expensive. And the sorts of people whose kids end up being born with congenital heart issues are more likely to be poor because, you know, they don't get scans, those issues go undetected. And so you end up with a condition you just can't afford. But someone has to do it and we would do it. So you figure, okay, I'll lose money on this. I'll make it up on karma or something else. Things that you can make money on, medicines, diagnostics, all of that, you can be pretty ruthless about being quite efficient, making sure the time's not wasted, make sure the patients are seen on time. And so broadly, I would say the culture also comes from us being not as bloodthirsty on hitting numbers or hitting financial metrics, but more on removing uh, inefficiencies, removing a lot of the waste and being very sensitive to what we always say in the end, this is the patient's money. If, if it takes too long, if it's wasted, we're wasting the patient's time and money. And that's something we can't do. What motivates you as a leader, professional, entrepreneur? We, uh, what motivates me is that, yeah, I can see the change that's happening. I can see that we're providing net good in the world. Like every day, thousands of people walk through our doors and thousands of people walk out happy and are motivated by knowing that you've made a difference in their lives. The future motivates me a lot. The future orientation uh, helps because as much as things aren't as good as they could be, whatever systems I describe that we are, that we have, that we're building is not perfect. Our appointment systems still don't work perfectly. Our calls still don't get answered perfectly. Our app does crash from time to time. The blood test results do take time. 
those counters and paper and all of that still exists. But we're making forward momentum and I'm motivated by the fact that we're building towards something that will be better than anything the world has ever seen when it comes to how a healthcare experience should look like. And that's something that not too many people are focused on, not too many people are investing as much time and effort in doing. And when we get there, this can be a model for the whole world to copy. And then, you know, it could lead to great things because then people start taking care of their health better. Like it is just astounding to me that most people don't spend as much time thinking about their health as they should. Even if it's five minutes a day, they're not even spending five minutes a day thinking about whether they should be really ordering that dessert, thinking about whether they've taken enough steps today or choosing the stairs versus the lift. These are simple interviews. Small nudges help. All of those examples. I was recently at the offices of Amagi <coughs> Networks. Uh, Baskar, uh, who's the CEO and co-founder, is one of our investors. And they have this on every floor. They have this, I think, read output which says, if you climb the next flight of stairs, this is the total number of calories that you would have spent. Um, I was at Blue Tokai the other day and like, you know, they've got these new range of cruffins. And the good thing is they've got a calorie readout next to it. It was just like 450 calories. And then I was like, okay, I'll just get myself a cookie. And then there were two cookies and one of them was 250 calories and the other one was 150. So I think these small nudges kind of help. Uh, what's that equivalent of small nudges when it comes to healthcare or hospitals? Are there any such things? There are. Everything that, so everything you described exists. So, my wife was a dietitian and she, you know, really drills a lot of this into me and as to how, and she loves baking, but she keeps reminding me how much butter and sugar goes into all the baked goods you described. Uh, we did that. So there is a stat, you burn a quarter of a calorie for every step that you take. So I measured the steps in the office, uh, in the corporate office. So it's on the second floor. I measured all the steps and it roughly is equal to one, uh, Murray biscuit, you know, the, the Murray, I'm not even talking yeah. about Good Day or Oreo or any of the other really bad ones. Just the Murray biscuit, the most basic biscuit that you have is the yeah, that's walking. True. People overestimate the importance of just walking. And so I had... Or this, the calorie impact of walking. Yeah. I had this giant poster made hmm. with one big Murray biscuit. And I said, these many steps is this many calories. One Murray biscuit is this many calories. And I, I just kept it there. Zero corporate announcement, zero sort of monthly fitness goal that, you know, some of the other companies do and they say, whoever loses the most weight can earn whatever. No, none of that. Just the nudge what you said, just one poster, Murray biscuit so much. And on every single step, I said, okay, quarter calorie, half calorie, one calorie, one, one and a quarter, two quarters. And when you reach the top, some 25 calories, you've... Burnt and 25 calories a Murray biscuit. And I said, okay, let's see if lift usage has come down. Maybe for three days. Three, four days tops. And, you know. The, we revert to the mean. Everything reverts to the mean. And so, uh, going back to the point, the thing, it can change. And I think there is a lot more that we can do. The small nudges is a part of it. What motivates me is that more people should be thinking about the health. They can think about the health and there are certain things that just compound on itself. I, I, for example, was a pretty fat kid and had terrible eating habits and, you know, I'm not as fat as I used to be anymore and I have pretty fairly decent eating habits. But it took me a lifetime to get to this point. And so I'm hoping that we can systematize enough of this that this can You're be... You're fairly the, fit. I mean, ever since I've known you, you've been fit. What's your fitness routine? Uh... So what I'm going for now, it used to be pretty intense. In my 20s, I I really, really overdid it. Uh, you know, I would be doing CrossFit. I would be doing uh, like a, a lot of things because I thought I was pretty good in India till I went to the US. And when I saw people just doing marathons on a weekend just for fun, I said, well, this is, this is a level of fitness I can never hope to match. And I never did. And the older I get... Uh, you know, the joints tend to remind me of the things I am and I'm not capable of. 
So try to do things that are more practical. So it's every day exercise for half an hour. And I try to get in a walk every half an hour. And the exercise, I keep alternating. So it's two days cardio, two days yoga, two days dumbbells. So it puts enough variety in there. And I'm very lucky that my wife is with me. And so she is there. So, you know, we both ensure the we stick to the routine just because I don't want to disappoint her and she doesn't want to disappoint me. And we both hate it. We both just hate waking up early to go to exercise. But if each of us know that that person got up for me and I got up for I them. I fully agree. Mutual feedback slash reinforcement loops are the best way to kind of keep habits in check, right? Yeah. You're also a parent. You've two kids. I have two girls, yes. How old are they? Uh, 11 and 9. And how are you as a parent? <laughs> <laughs> the uh, I was on the phone the other day. I was with my kids. And it was a work call. And then my voice immediately went to... Uh, like my kid said, it, oh, Dad, your voice just changed so much. You know, it's so scary when you're in your work voice. And uh, so they, it reminded me a lot like how different a person I am around them. And when I'm in, you know, corporate mode, uh, I'm, I don't get to spend enough time with them. The workers are pretty brutal. Like our industry is one in which doctors have to work long hours. And so the rest of us pretty much have to. And so the time that I do get to spend with them, love reading with them, uh, listening to podcasts with them, playing with them to the extent that I can. One of my kids is really into fashion, so helping her, you know, pick out fashion magazines. And I know nothing about fashion, and so she loves uh, teaching me about, you know, different design trends. And I love to nod and say, yes, that, that sounds amazing. How would your approach to their education and career choices be different than what your own was? I think the generation that you and I grew up in was the one of the aspiration, the one which you sort of knew the path. There was a pretty set formula. You know, you go to school, you get good grades, you do well in your ICSC, CBSC, you do your CET or IIT, you go to engineering and you get a good enough job and it works. It, it absolutely worked. I think it lifted our entire generation into the next echelon of uh, success and earnings. But it's so damn hard now. I feel so terrible looking at the kids slogging the hours that they put in in competitive exams, in the rat race, in doing the things that, while it may have been trivial for us, it may not be as trivial for my kids as well. So my aspirations, my sort of hope for what they become is I'm very fortunate that, you know, we've been able to build enough wealth in my family so they don't need to worry about starving. I want them to do anything. It doesn't matter what it is. It could be, you know, growing plants. It could be, you know, hiking the Arctic wilderness could be making... Is that true? Is that something that you're saying right now because they're young, they're 9 and 11, and by the time they become 17, 18, you're going to become the traditional Indian parent who says that, look, I mean, get a good college degree, get a good job, and then once you're stable, then you can figure out what you want to do with your lives. I mean, I can't speak to my 50-year-old self <laughs> because I'm sure, you know, 50-year-old Virian is going to look back and 40-year-old Virian and say, what the hell, man? You, you know, your kids need to make money. What is the point of, you know, all of this if they're not? Uh, I wouldn't want to at least, you know, a 39-year-old Virain will say, look, let them choose their own path. But I would say that the thing I would maybe force, if, if I have the ability to force a way of thinking upon them, it would be to choose uh, passion and excellence in whatever they do. Like if they are, even if they made more money being a half-assed consultant, it's, it, it won't because you see so much of mid-career professionals burn out and people just, you know, wander around aimlessly and, you know, succumb to all sorts of depression because they're in a field that, while fills them financially, uh, doesn't give them that 
you know, in our peace. And so for that, I would say whatever it is, even if you're feeding gorillas in Rwanda as a full-time job, if you just absolutely love doing that, if you're the, the best at it, if you're the best gorilla feed in Rwanda and you're passionate about doing it, you'll find a way to make it work. What's that version of that for you today? What what is it that what's that passion that's driving you is it that vision that you talked about of building something which does not exist and can be seen as a model in the rest of the world yeah because going through this day after day in the normal corporate mode i mean that would absolutely make me want to kill myself towards the end of it because it can bog you down it can be this thing that would be either overwhelming or just more of the same. Like I mentioned about the Groundhog Day of one fire after another. Like the job has to be, there has to be some passion behind it. It has to be challenging. It has to be interesting. And so it's like I'm playing this game on hard mode, right? In a hard mode meaning go after things we don't know that we can do. We don't know that we can run insurance. We don't know that we can do software. We don't know that we can even successfully implement, uh, you know, the OpenAI uh, bots into our discharge protocol, but just try it. And so if I can, and if we can make it work, it's interesting, it's challenging, it's something the world has not seen before. And that is what makes me passionate about doing that. If it's just more of the same, if it's then I would definitely succumb to all sorts of ennui that a lot of people end up feeling as mid-career professionals. Do you have strong views about legacies? I used to. But uh, then how could I not? Right? Because I am the product of legacy. I am the product of, let's say, my maternal grandfather who ran away from his house when he was 14, carried sacks of sand on his back, you know, with some British overseers with literal whips, uh, you know, then sort of figuring it out and building a construction company that generated the seed capital that allowed my father to quit his job and start, Narayana is actually named after my maternal grandfather. And, uh, you know, he built that into the organization that it is today. And then I get to stick around for the ride. And I used to believe that this was something that I bequeathed to my children and their children after that. And there's a part of me that does. But it wouldn't be the only thing. Because there is a part of me that feels, no, I am doing this for myself as well. I'm not just doing it because it's for the next generation. Then you won't be that uh, dedicated to it day after day. I'm doing it because I love it. I do it because I love the challenge of it. I love the team that I'm working with. And the legacy of what I build is a legacy for everyone. It's a legacy for everyone who works here. It's a legacy for all the patients who come in and they get to, you know, there are people who come in today who were kids when the hospital first, like they were treated in a hospital as infants. And now they are bringing their children to the hospital because, you know, they're all grown up, they're married and their kids are being born with the same set of congenital, sadly, the same set of congenital problems. But the point is that it's a legacy for everyone. It's not a personal legacy I crave as much as a legacy of an institution that can provide so many jobs, provide so much value. I mean, you essentially answered the question that I was going to ask you, which is your father, Dr. Devi Shetty, created Narayana Hridalaya and its legacy was, like you said, like, you know, earlier, low cost, high quality, high quality cardiac surgeries, but at low cost, including many which were done um, free of cost as well for those who couldn't afford it. And that became a model for the rest of the world. And the reason I asked you this was because many of the things that you said about what you want, you know, software, integrated services, etc. to kind of bring is what at least I saw as an outsider as I think a continuation or a, or a new version of that legacy, one that you bring um, and leave your imprint on. That's very interesting. Um, but it's all the same, right? The, you can't reduce the cost any more than it is now. So you need to do different things. You can't mm. keep doing the same things. How does, how so, does Dr. Devi Shetty or uh, Dr. Shetty have, what are his views about your views? Like, 
when I first presented that we should start our own software, we should start our own software company, why, why? This is not something that we do. And I explained that it is, so I reminded him of the time when email was just introduced. This was, he was working in Calcutta at the time and he was the busiest surgeon in the hospital and pretty much all the emails came to him. But it was so difficult to get the email server set up and it was set up in the name of the CEO of the hospital, who the patients clearly were not, you know, you don't go to the CEO of a hospital for the email. So there had to be someone who would walk all the way to that office, print out all the ones that we, maybe one or two of the financial ones, you know, eliminate those, get all the patient queries, come back, my father would write notes and then go back to the CEO's office, type it out. It was So eventually he figured out it was cheaper for him to hire his own, you know, the peak of software developer at the time was a guy who could set up an email server in the early 90s, right? And I said, you did that. You got someone to build, to set up the email server for you. How is this any different? It's pretty much the same thing. Patients are coming here. They have information, uh, you know, right now where it's the equivalent of going to the CEO's office to print out emails when we're reliant on third-party developers. So the analogies allow uh, us to explain how this thing that seems very antithetical to our business operations actually is pretty much all part of the same story. And so insurance is again the same thing. Okay, four lakh rupees becomes two lakh rupees. Two lakh rupees can become 2,000 rupees, but 2,000 rupees every quarter or every month, depending on how it works out. And then he gets it. And then he says, yeah, this is all part of the same mission. I can lower the cost even more by turning it into an insurance premium. What are the things that the two of you definitely agree on? And what are the things that you most end up disagreeing on? We are always in agreement on the overall mission that we want to build a large company. We want to build a globe spanning company. We want to keep pushing the boundaries of what a healthcare company can and, uh, you know, should do. We disagree a lot on how we get there. So there are, okay, so in the, you mentioned about the diagnostics and scanning uh, centers. So I have a belief that it should be located on, let's say, a high street. It should be in a commercial location. Whereas my father believes that it should be set up in a tech park or it should be set up in a mall or something like that. Neither one of us is right because the truth is none of us know. But this will be a point of difference. We say, oh, do it here, do it there. We may end up doing both. We may end up doing neither. But the fact is that we have very different ideas about how to execute on that. And sometimes I'm right. Most of the time he's right. But in the end, it's just a process of discovery because neither of us is 100% right. In the end, the only one who's right is the customer. Whatever the patient is willing to pay for, that's pretty much what works. And nearly everything that we've done has ended up being very different from what we started out. We run a very uh, unique and successful hospital in the Cayman Islands that failed in its original mission of being this 2,000-bed hospital that treated patients from all over the U.S. and Canada and Mexico and Latin America. It failed in that. It succeeded in being a 100-bed, very high-end hospital at relatively low volumes just for patients in the Cayman and Caribbean. So that's what it's become now? That's, I mean, yeah, it is successful, but 80% of the volume is local. Only 20% comes from the US and all of that. It was supposed to be the other way around. So it failed in what it was supposed to be, but it succeeded in what people eventually decided it needs to be. And that will be the case for our insurance. That will be the case for our uh, software as well. In the end, the person who's using it gets to decide what you are. Your customers decide what kind of company you become. And... The journey we take to get there is essentially, you know, just try not to blow up while the customers tell us what we need to become. So how does that influence or impact <coughs> the way you approach new business areas? If this is your overall method towards achieving what I'd probably call product market fit, that it might be very different from what you, so how does that influence bets that you make? How you execute them? Oh, you never bet the farm. You never bet the whole company on one of those. You never mortgage your future 
on something unless you are 100% convinced and you have some secret agenda or some absolute secret sauce or something behind it. You, you never bet because you could be wrong. You could be wrong in ways you don't even know how you're wrong. And so a lot of the times uh, the startups that don't make it or young companies that end up taking funding down a path that was never sustainable to begin with didn't give themselves enough wiggle room to ultimately discover what it was that, uh, you know, getting to that product market fit, but also building a unit economic positive model along the way. And so the thing that informs us and in how we end up building these is to take small measured bets commensurate with our pocketbook. Still, the bulk of our money is spent in doing things we know that work, in adding more beds, in building, you know, hospital rooms, CTs, MRIs, better bathrooms, all of that. Like that's where most of the money goes. And all of this is still relatively small, 10, 20, 25% of the money that we spend is on software, insurance, all of that. But if it works, then we can keep escalating our commitment and investing more and more and more in that. I'm reminded of a conversation you and I once had um, around pattern recognition and especially around Dr. Shetty where you would say that occasionally when you and he would go for walks um, around the neighborhood park, he would spot people walking and he would like tell them that this person, he would tell you that this person has so-and-so disease or this person doesn't know it, right? Like, you know, that's, I mean, of course, as with decades of experience as a surgeon, he's got that pattern recognition. What's your, I mean, we also spoke about GPT, which is also pattern recognition and, and prediction. What's, what are the patterns you tend to kind of spot the best? Um, in company statements and in the presentations founders make, like that's the sort of pattern. So that's the thing that I spend most of my time on and understanding how companies work. So my pattern recognition is not in individuals with, uh, you know, issues, but it's how companies think. So when a company says, we're going to spend X billions of dollars on, you know, conquering this market. And I can say, okay, you know, either this company's on this absolute ego trip or they know something that the rest of us don't know. So there may be a conglomerate out there that's acquiring every single niche of the economy that currently exists because there's an amenable, uh, you know, system that allows that. And, you know, you can look and say, oh, this is corporate overreach, this is greed. But on the other hand, I say, no, this, this actually makes sense because there's a very limited amount of time where you can grab as much land as possible. So from a corporate strategy perspective, this is the logical move to make. Or if you see some company that's not doing well in its home market, and they say, no, we're going to pivot to the Middle East, we're going to pivot to the US. Some people may say, oh, you know, this is just a desperate grab for more VC dollars. I would look at it and say, no, actually, it makes sense because they've figured out the right model. They're just not unit economic positive here. But with the same cost structure, you leverage that in a higher paying market, you have yourself a viable business. So the patterns, I am not great at it, but the things that I'm better uh, than the people around me are is in looking at how companies behave and seeing the things that, you know, why they would do a certain thing and what their motivation would be around that. How do you keep abreast of what's happening in the world? Is it books? Is it articles? Is it podcasts? Tell us more. Oh, all of that. Like, um, I have a what's long... your, let's start with books. Well, I have a long commute. Um, so podcasts are useful and because you can listen to that while the car is going. Uh, books, I try and read it in snatches throughout the day. At any point in time, there are three books in circulation. There'll be a physical book that's in my office. There'll be a Kindle that'll be on flights and there'll be another physical book at home. And it'll be a combination of all the sorts of things that interest me. I don't try and restrict myself to any one particular genre of fiction, nonfiction, business bias. So sometimes there'll be books about corporate strategy, business history, regular history, science fiction, just good literature, whichever book was shortlisted for the Booker Prize this year. I try to, you know, go through a very different set of books because not that I read it with an agenda of any inspiration. You know, I read just to give my mind a break from thinking of the same thing again and again. What are some of the most recent books that you've read that you might want to recommend? 
Uh, now, because we are orienting our offering around integrated care, around people living healthier, I started, I never used to do this, but all these, you know, four hour body, uh, this book. Oh, Dr. Peter Atia's book as well. Outlive mm. by Peter Atia. There's another book by Strauss Zelnick, which is, uh, I forget the name, but this guy is the CEO of uh, a video game company and he's like 60 years old. He's got the body of a 20 year old. It, it, it's crazy. So, you know, just basic principles for fitness, uh, diet, living well. Like a lot of it is pretty obvious advice, but I'm trying to see if there are similarities and ways in which it can be condensed down to something a lot more easily digestible. So that's one set of books uh, I'm reading. The other set of books I read is around corporate failures. Uh, why? Because you, you know, those who don't study from history are condemned to repeat it. So this book called Power Failure, which is this huge story about GE's rise and fall, uh, Smartest Guys in the Room, which is about Enron. Enron. Uh, there's another book about the entire, you know, uh, stock market crash during uh, long-term capital management. Uh, just, you know, those sorts of books. And in science fiction, just again, it's just whatever picks my fancy at the time. So And what you, about podcasts? Oh, well, there is a podcast I recommend. It's by this uh, company called The Ken. Have you heard about it? It's, it's about leadership. <laughs> I'm They, flattered. Yeah. <laughs> What are the other ones? Uh, again, business uh, biographies. So this, this set of podcasts called Acquired. Yes. Uh, Founders podcast, uh, This American Life, which is, you know, I was just listening this morning about... Uh, This dispatch is from this guy in Gaza, which is, you know, quite fascinating. Uh, podcasts about the history of Rome, just general history as well. What does the media consumption for your daughters look like? <laughs> Now it's the holidays, so it's as much time as they can. Uh, uh, in front of what? Smartphones? Oh, no, TVs? I, I, I'm trying my <coughs> hardest to, you know, delay getting them a smartphone for as long as possible. I don't know how successful I'm going to be. Because no, my son's 13. He still doesn't have one. Oh. Uh, I'm in that same boat. Maybe 14 is when we break. Oh, good on you, man. Like I'm hoping like 18, okay, out of the house and you take, <laughs> take a phone and go with you. Uh, I, I don't think it's going to be possible because, you know. Well, let me be the one to predict that you're, that you're going to be a failure at that. Uh, it, it, it rots your brain, man. It's, it's so hard as a parent to know Like, I know I'm not as mentally capable as I was. I'm not able to, like, my kids will be able to recall with picture-perfect clarity some event where I said something obnoxious two years ago. They remember the restaurant. They remember down to the last word of what I said. I can't even remember what I had for breakfast this morning because of the media consumption diet. It's so bad for your brain, but we're so awash in content. Now, why would I willingly give them this distraction device? And so I think, okay, you know, at least finish your board exams or put some constraints. But to be fair, it's not that whatever the equivalent of this was in our day, I had pretty much access to it, your video games, computers, or so on. They weren't as distracting as they are now. So for my kids, I would say that as long as I can possibly delay this, I would try my very hardest because I'm such a hypocrite in that I'm not able to do it for myself. I have all the settings done for... But that's perhaps exactly why you want to do it yeah. for them. And, and it's astonishing, right? There was this story, um, again, from the Steve Jobs biography, and someone asked, you know, how much uh, time do your kids get? You? He said, no, my kids don't have cell phones, right? And the same with, uh, you know, all the social... The people who on social media spend the yeah, least yeah. amount of time yeah, on social media. There's companies. a lot of... Uh, Most tech executives and founders, their kids go to schools which have, uh, you know, very, very, very strict rules around electronic devices. There's this amazing dichotomy where we talk about this technology being this great disruptor, great innovator. But, you know, those who are in it know how <laughs> dangerous and how, uh, you know, how addictive it can be. So we don't want that for our children. So that's... Perhaps we should all look to China, which has fairly strict rules around kids' exposure to games, video, etc. And like, you know, I don't know, I mean, of all the things that are coming out of China, the one which I kind of agree with the most is, I think they see that a lot of these modern technologies like TikTok, 
smartphones, apps, etc. are addictive to kids and therefore you need to have special laws. Uh, I think the rest of the world is still fairly behind. Uh, Western world is behind. India, I'm not sure we've even like, you know, figured out what we want to do with respect to children and screen time. And it's tough, you know, to try and build a nanny state around that while at the same time trying to preserve your sanity. But, you know, it's not, this is the world we're getting into. There is so much information to keep up with. You can't, you know, be out of the loop in a lot of these. And so, uh, you know, finding that balance will be an interesting challenge for all of us. Thank you so much, Viren. It's been a pleasure having you on First Principles. Thanks, Ryan.